0: Well, now we know what's gone wrong, how our world got into the state it's in, and exactly what kind of a state it's in. And we have a rough idea starting to form of the story world. But now we need to tear it apart. Now we need to take it apart into its constituent elements and then build it back together. And I don't know what you're thinking. Charlie, we haven't built anything yet. Yes and no. We have collected all of the raw materials now. Now it's time for us to develop the archetypes of the collective unconscious. Yeah, we're going there on today's episode of Project Shadow. You I have something to say. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name's Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer CE Dorset, and today we're continuing our World Building 101 seminar, and we're going into the collective unconscious. Yeah, we're getting Jungian on this. So I hope you're ready for that. This this, this is the part that I get into a lot of arguments with people because they're like, that's hokey and that doesn't work, and it does, but you have to do it properly, as with all things in world building. It's about understanding the principles and putting them into practice. But before we get into all that, I hope you're all doing well. It's a crazy time right now. I hope I sound good. (sighs) To be quite honest with you, which I always try to be, my emotional state is wavering a lot lately because of obvious reasons. And I just hope that you all are doing what you need to do to stay well and to stay sane in these really tough times. I personally have been meditating a lot more than normal because it helps me keep my mind focused and calm. Whatever works for you, do that. I'm not going to make any prescriptions. I'm not going to tell you what to do. We've talked about some of the things that have helped me over the years, from my CBD to my meditation to getting stories done. But please take care of yourself. It means so much to all of us right now that we try to stay away from harm and keep ourselves focused and ready for when this is all past. Alrighty, let's just get into it, shall we? Alright, It just turned into somebody else there for a minute a genderqueer version of them, but you know, it's how we do. So when I normally do this, when I normally go through my world building, I would have actually done one step prior to the archetypes. And I'm going to touch on that briefly, but we will come back to it later. So don't worry about it. But I usually actually figure out my steps of the problem first and then do this. Now, what that means is using the stealing from the uh, fire from the gods method, we are going to go through the various invariant steps that it took for the world to get into the steps into the state that it's currently in. This method uses a version of the hero cycle by Joseph Campbell, but it's been altered to show how an anti-hero is formed how the darkness comes about. It's the other half of the circle. We will talk about that later, but that's just because I've used this model so many times. I already have a lot of these archetypes already forming in my head. And if this is your first time using it, you really need to have an idea of the archetypes that we're building here before you go into that process. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Right now, let's focus on our archetypes. This is a uh, format that you should go back to numerous times and make sure that you're building this out the way that you need to do it for your story, for your world, because with everything in this process, as we learn more, we should go back and modify what we did before. Remember, the whole point and purpose of this is to retell the, the story to ourselves and to refine the story for ourselves so that we get to the end of this process and we have a strong story world that's able to generate what, we're, what are called story focuses, story foci. And each of those story foci will be a short story, a novel, a novella, or a book or a novel. Okay. So that's what we're working on is this really strong world. So if you remember, we have already drawn our circle. Remember our circle? Go back, pull up your notes, go back back to your circle, the entity being transformed. The first archetype that we are going to build out is the ego. Now the ego is the center of that entity. Whatever that entity is, right in the heart of it, right in its center, in in its core, There is an individual or a group or an institution that is the ego. This is the constructive energy of the creative consciousness. This is the constructive energy of the system. So going to our Star Trek example, we drew a circle around the Enterprise. The ego would be Kirk. Kirk is at the middle of everything. Even the stories that don't directly involve Kirk, Kirk is there. And that's a story-focused thing later. Um, you could make it simply the command structure. Because from whether we're dealing with, well, any of the Star Trek series, from the original series to the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery. Yeah, it even kind of works when we talk about Picard. You could say that the ego is the command staff, the senior staff, because the vast majority of our stories are going to involve them. This is where you can start individuating it into a family group or an institution or a role. So for example, in Avatar the Last Airbender, the ego here would be the avatar, where the world is the world that's being transformed. The ego is the avatar, the one Person at the center around which everything moves. I hope that is clear. You don't have to think of it as an individual right now. We're not necessarily talking about Aang. We're not talking about Aang. We're talking about the avatar itself. So, going back to our Star Trek examples, maybe our circle was around the Federation. Or, for Deep Space Nine, this works really, really well for you to see how this works in groups. The entity being transformed is actually this tripartite relationship between the Federation, the Bajorans, and the Cardassians. This is the circle that we're drawing. Okay, that is the entity being transformed because it's that fundamental relationship that is at the heart of most, if not all, of the stories in Deep Space Nine. The ego, then, would be Deep Space Nine itself and the people, crew, and events that take place there and because of there. I think that might help you see it better, (laughs) I hope. Okay, so once we have our ego, once we have that circle drawn, next we have to go and look for our spiritual archetypes. Now, these are going to be the guides, the ones that offer wisdom to our heroes, these are the guardians of destiny. They inspire people. This is our Obi Wan Kenobi, right? To go to Star Wars. Into Space Nine, this is very obviously the Kais, the Vedics, and the Prophets, right? These are the ones that bring unfettered wisdom. And when I say unfettered wisdom, when we, we talk about the other archetypes, you're going to see how they're focused in one realm or another. Our spiritual archetypes, while yes, they may be offering wisdom from the point of view of the spirit, or the spiritual, or the religious, or the mystical, or what have you, the main focus here is actually on just undifferentiated wisdom, okay? Our mental archetypes come next. They're the ones that are a bit harder to pull off in a way that's not obnoxious, annoying, and just cringe-inducing. <laughs> so the mental archetypes are the thinking part of the series. They're the, the thinking part of the world. We could say that in Dune, these would be the Mentats, right? In the next generation, this would be Data. In the... um. Star Trek, the original series, this is Spock. In um, D Space Nine, this is primarily Odo, but not exclusively Odo. Now, they don't have to be cold. They don't have to be detached. They don't have to be aloof. In many older versions of the story, these are actually the wizards. Merlin often fits this role better than he does the spiritual role in most Arthurian tales, where the spiritual role is actually held off for either one, an, an angel of some theophany that will come, the green knight often is a uh, stand-in for the spiritual, the grail itself is the spiritual archetype in most of the Arthurian stories, and Merlin is the mental archetype. This is the reasoning. This is the thought process. This is the one that patterns everything that they do towards logic, reason, and finding the answers. So, whatever that is in your world. Now, I feel like it's important to state before we go on that I'm using characters as an example. These don't have to be characters, these could be cultures, these could be some of your fantasy races or your monsters. These could be various positions on your ship. As we'll see, most science officers or doctors take on the role of the uh, mental archetype, right? Our next archetype is the emotional one. And Deanna Troy, as ship's counselor, obviously fits that bill. So this could be something concrete, like a character. It could be an office. It could be a role in your world. It could be a species it could be a, a culture a religion it it could be just about anything that you would build that fits this role just be careful not to vulcanate them because just or klingonize them i love the vulcans and i love the klingons but Oh my. They they are so rigidly sorted into their groups, and while the Vulcans have gotten better over time, and the Klingons have gotten more depth over time. While we are looking at these as the primary archetypes, you don't want to try to pigeonhole them too exclusively, or things start falling apart if you are an exclusively warrior society. Who builds the ships? You know, <laughs> you have to think about those things as well. So the original idea in Star Trek is that there was a warrior class cast called the Klingons and there were actually going to be other casts and they built the ships into the science and they did the leadership that that didn't work out in the end. That's not what they used, but that was the original idea. So don't pigeonhole too much, but use these to kind of understand and make sure that you have all of your bases covered. Okay, so like I was saying, the next is our emotional archetypes. These are the ones that come out of the emotions. So this is the social feeling, the positive and negative, the the familial bonds. These are your brothers and sisters and mothers and and daughters and fathers and sons. These are those emotional relationships that move a story forward, that exist in the world, that are important in the world. And again, as with all these things, they could be more than just a person. So bear that in mind as you're making them. Just to make sure that we get through all of the archetypes, I'm going to just go through the rest really quickly and then we'll kind of talk about how you create an archetype in total, okay? So next you have your physical archetypes. These are very animalistic. They are um, directly out of nature. They are wild. They, they are work off of their instincts, their appetites, their drives. The, the, they can often be a corrupting influence in the story, depending on how your story is written. That's who they are. Then you have your anima and your animus. And these should be two separate classes of archetypes. One represents the anima representing the feminine aspects of the the work, and the animus, the feminine aspects of the work. And it's important to contemplate both here. While everything that we've talked about to this point has been relatively non-binary, in that you could have a male or a female here, this is not necessarily where you want to delve deeply into the binary and try to make it very men are this way, women are that way. But to think about the stereotypes and the energies and the ideas that are bound up in the idea of ideas of femininity and masculinity and how that actually plays out in your story world, how that actually impacts your story and the characters within it. Then you have your trickster. The trickster archetypes are their troublemakers. Q from Star, Star Trek is a very good example of this. They are simply there to trip up characters and to kick them forward so they don't get stuck think about it star trek in the first season of the next generation the federation was kind of rigid and stuck and very full of itself thinking that it had kind of evolved to this ultimate state q knows that this isn't true and forces the enterprise to encounter the borg long before they should have this trick kickstarts the Federation into realizing, oh, we're not the biggest, baddest thing on the block. There are other things out there. We should stop being complacent. And that's what a good trickster should always do. Then you have your threshold guardians. A threshold guardian in a lot of ways is the exact opposite of a trickster. Their entire job is to stop people from moving forward unless they are worthy unless they are prepared to move forward they provide tests and challenges and they're there to break the resolve of the characters coming towards them so that they don't get even any further the last archetype we're going to talk about is the shadow the shadow is every undesirable trait of the psyche everything These are the demons, the villains, the the darkest parts of your world. Now, when I talk about these as archetypes, remember, we're doing these as archetypes, not stereotypes. Can there be a redeeming quality in your villain? Yes, but your villain should represent something in that shadow self. Can there be an emotional component to Your logic and reason and your mental archetypes? Yes, of course there can. But they should have a voice of reason. Don't Star Trek this. (laughs) As much as I love Star Trek, there's always this debate going on, and it feels like every series between our emotions say this, but our logic says that. Well... It's not that simple. We all know from our own personal experiences that it's not that simple. So yes, these can be mixed and merged and they can overlap in a lot of ways. Remember, we are beyond the age of the binary where everything has to be either this or that. It can be both and. The most important thing here is to make sure that you have covered all of these boxes. Because if you don't, the world will feel empty and it will often be really difficult to figure out what's missing in it. This is something that I think a lot of people felt when they watched um, the Percy Jackson movies compared to the Harry Potter movies. When you, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the films here because I, I haven't read the Rick Reardon books. So, sorry. Um, so, I can't speak to those. But when you look at the world building presented in the movies, the movies for the Percy Jackson series are very clear cut, Action adventure movies. They're quest films. Percy receives a quest, he's faced with a challenge, he goes out to defeat it. The early Harry Potter movies are very clearly quest movies. Harry sees a challenge, he picks up the quest, and he goes out to solve the problem, right? Very similar, very similar. Why did the Harry Potter movies resonate stronger with people than the Percy Jackson movies? Well, Snape is very clearly our shadow figure in the first film and in all of the films. He represents most of the qualities we don't want. So does Draco Malfoy. We get to see Ron, who is very much our physical embodiment here, our physical um, archetype, as well as, well, most of the Weasleys and the whole game of Quidditch. We have Hermione, who is our mental archetype. We have Variant characters, depending on the film that we're talking about, who fill the emotional roles. We have Dumbledore, who is the ultimate spiritual father. We have McGonagall, who is there to give comfort, aid, and wisdom throughout everything that's going on. Through each of these, Seamus and Dean are very, as well as the Weasley twins, very much emotional archetypes in every form. So even in the first film, We have a full set of archetypes there, and the world feels complete. While I could probably stretch many of the characters that appear in the film, and again, keeping it solely to the first Percy Jackson film, it would be hard for me to tick each of those boxes with each of those characters. And thus the world feels hollow. It feels like there's something missing. We don't want that for our stories. So as you're building your archetypes, try to make sure that you've covered all of them, that you have something in each box. That way the world feels full because all of us in our day-to-day lives have physical issues, mental issues, emotional issues, spiritual issues. We wrestle with our shadows. We are confronted by tricksters and gar- and threshold guardians who try to keep us from moving forward or trip us up. Our world should have those things as well. All right. I hope that helps. It's kind of a crash course on the archetypes. If you have any questions or comments down in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. If you'd rather hit me up on social media, I am C. Dorsett on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can find links to everything that I do over at ProjectShadow.com. Alrighty. If you've got a buck you can spare in these tough and dangerous times in the show notes, you'll find a link to both my Patreon and listener support. Thank you to everyone who does that. And if you can't afford to do that right now, I completely understand. But if you know somebody you think would like any of the work that I'm doing, please share it with them. That helps more than you could possibly know. And I guess that's it. Tomorrow we will continue. We have quite a few more steps to go through. Before we get to the end of this, we're going to be bringing in some of N.K. Jemison's ideas to flesh out these archetypes. So hopefully you're ready for that. Alrighty. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be safe, be careful, be well, and don't forget to have the fun. Bye.